You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. In the early Christian document, St. Mathetes, Epistle to Diognetus, we encounter a fascinating observation about the new community that was forming in the first and second centuries around the message and the person of Jesus Christ. This letter was drafted in the second century, and it is a good expression of the way that Christians thought about themselves and their reputation in the world. This is what this letter This epistle to Diognetus says of the Christian community in the second century. They followed the native customs in dress and food and other arrangements of life. Yet the constitution of their own citizenship, which they set forth, is marvelous and confessedly contradicts expectation. They dwell in their own countries, but only as sojourners. They bear their share in all things as citizens and they endure all hardships as strangers. Every foreign country is a fatherland to them, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like all other men, and they beget children, but they do not cast away their offspring. They have their meals in common, but not their wives. They find themselves in the flesh, and yet they live not after the flesh. Their existence is on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, and they surpass the laws in their own lives. They love all men, and they are persecuted by all. They are ignored, and yet they are condemned. They are put to death, and yet they are endued with life. They are in beggary, and yet they make many rich. They are in want of all things, and yet they abound in all things. They are dishonored, and yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are evil spoken of. And yet they are vindicated. They are reviled and they bless. They are insulted and they respect. Doing good, they are punished as evildoers. Being punished, they rejoice as if they were thereby quickened by life. This account of the early church that was gathering around the gospel of Jesus, I think you could say of them based upon Text such as this, that they ordered their lives in the world for the life of the world. I think that's how you could put a tag on the early church. They ordered their lives in the world for the life of the world. And today marks our final installment of our series. And we've talked about the practices by which we embody life in union with Christ. And We have also talked about the offices by which we share in the ministry of Christ as his people. And today, we close by discussing the final office that we are to take up in union with Christ. And we're going to talk about living as a kingly church for the life of the world. And there are two points that I want to drive home today. I want to look at royal priorities and royal leadership. Royal priorities and royal leadership. Just to keep in mind, 
everything that we have been saying about the offices of the church, it's a result of the way that our union with Christ gives us a, a share in the work that Jesus was about in the world and continues to be about in the world. The way in which Jesus continues to carry out his prophetic ministry today is through his church. And so we have a prophetic identity and a prophetic responsibility in the world. That one of the ways in which Jesus continues to carry out significant aspects of his priestly office is through the priestly ministry of the church, where we extend meaningful aspects of the priestly ministry of Jesus. And it's the same with the kingly ministry of Jesus. We recognize that Christ alone is king as Christians. But there is a kingly or royal dynamic to the way in which you and I are supposed to live in the world. And that's what we're talking about today. And I think it's important that we look at a, a tableau, a picture of what beautiful kingship looks like in the world. So let's begin with our first point, royal priorities. Now, King David was the undisputed king over all of Israel at this point. Everything in his realm was under his control. His power and authority were on clear display. And we see in our text how it was that King David used his authority and his power in his kingdom. Chapter 8, verse 15 says this. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Now, when you look at the Old Testament profile of a king, there were certain qualifications or expectations that were laid upon all of the Israelite kings as they executed their office. If you look through the Old Testament record, you will see that a king was to be chosen by God. He was not self-appointed. A king was not to accumulate horses. That is, he was not to trust in his military might. He was not to accumulate many wives. In other words, he was to maintain fidelity to a particular sexual ethic. He was not to accumulate wealth for himself. He was supposed to be free of the greed that would often undermine peace, shalom, in his kingdom. He was to be a defender of the poor, a deliverer of the needy, and an opponent of the oppressor. He was to love justice, to establish equity, and to execute justice and righteousness. And finally, the king was to write a copy of the law for himself, to read that law, and to obey that law. The king was supposed to internalize the law because in his life, he was supposed to be the premier embodiment of that law for the people. Because everyone knew that as it went for the king, so it would go for the people. If the king wasn't living up to this standard, then who else could be expected to? And that's why the prophetic and the priestly and the kingly roles were so intertwined. Because the prophet was speaking to the king, making sure that he was staying on point with faithfulness to the Lord. 
And if it should be found out that the king was, was off the mark, then there would be priestly ministry that would be worked out for him to atone for his sins so that he could resume his kingly office in the beauty of the way that was supposed to be embodied. But as you read through this list, you might wonder, what does this kingly role actually look like in real time? Okay, I hear the list, I hear the grocery list of the expectations for a king, the responsibilities for the way that a king was supposed to operate in the world. But could you tell me, could you show me what that might look like? I think this is why the narrator gives us this story that follows. I think that's why he gives it to us. In this narrative, we see how the royal priorities were to show up back in that cultural context. And if you and I can get a sense of the way that these royal priorities showed up back in that context, then we'll be better prepared to understand how these kingly priorities are to show up in our context. All right, you tracking with me? All right, so let's, let's look at our second point where we see royal leadership. Now, King David had dealt with all of the enemies and the threats that surrounded Israel on the outside. He was given specific direction by the Lord in prayer and communion with the Lord, in conference with the priestly workers and the kings as to what he was supposed to do. And he followed the Lord's rule to the T. But as we get to our passage for today, we are, we are seeing a, a picture of the, the conflictual way that David as king worked out his office relative to his surrounding culture. Because there is something that is very countercultural that happens in this text, y'all. It's very countercultural. The cultural expectation in the ancient Near East, which was the culture of that time, the expectation was this. After a king put down the enemies around him, a new king, after a new king put down the enemies surrounding his kingdom, the next move is that he would crush all of the enemies internally. He would look and he would say, who was most likely to try and, and, and stage a coup over my reign? And it was usually the family of the previous king. The, the, the cultural expectation is that you find your political enemies and you destroy them. The, the cultural expectation was that you would identify your cultural enemies and put them to death. The family of the previous king would have been the number one target. They would have been at the top of the hit list. Because this was a self-protective measure. This was risk management, y'all. And all kings of that time surrounding the nation of Israel... We're known for this because at the end of the day, all of those kings in the ancient Near East wanted to consolidate their power. The greatest fear they had was losing their power. They did everything to accumulate power. But this is where we get a surprising turn, a shocking reversal in this story. It was completely countercultural and unexpected. Any other ancient Near Eastern king would have turned to his advisors and said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may put them to death? But David shows that he's 
not like other kings. Because he asks a different question in verse 1. Take a look. David says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? You see, David remembered a promise that he had made long ago. A covenant with David, the one he loved as his own soul. And on the basis of this covenant love, David chooses love for his enemies rather than the sword. I'm going somewhere with this, y'all. David isn't looking around for approval from his culture. He isn't looking around at what the kings of the other ancient Near Eastern nations was doing with their enemies. Nah, he decided that he was going to lead on the basis of covenant love. He leads because he knows who he is. He is the Lord's king. And that is to say, David understood that his kingly responsibility was supposed to be a reflection of the true king. Now, everyone in Israel knew that the Lord was the true king. But David was supposed to be a, an audio visual of that just and righteous and equitable kingship on the earth. Nah, David wasn't looking around at his cultural peers. And what we see in this text is that David knew the difference between a true enemy and a friend temporarily disguised as an enemy. Because he was a man after God's own heart. I'm going to say that again. David knew the difference between a true enemy and a friend who was temporarily disguised as an enemy because he was a man after God's own heart. Here is a king who's willing to put himself in the way of risk so that he could put someone else in the way of redemption. I'm going somewhere, y'all. Remember the context, family. Remember the context of the books of Samuel. This is the house of Saul. And if you notice through the narrative, the narrator keeps pointing out that those that, that David is dealing favorably with are from the house of Saul. This was the man who wanted David dead. This was the man who tried to ruin David's life. Many of the lament psalms that we have in the scriptures are the result of Saul's persecution of David. When he talks about his pillow being tears, his bed being a flood of tears, crying himself through the midnight hour, it was Saul who was giving him that tune. This was the man who hurled a spear at David to pierce him through. Verse 3 gives us an additional layer. David asks a servant, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? The word kindness here is the Hebrew word chesed, which means loyal love. In other words, it was loyal love. It was covenant love that drove David. It wasn't that he just wanted to remain faithful to the covenant he made with Jonathan. He wants to show the house of Saul the loyal love of God. That's what drives him. Everybody knew that it was the house of Saul that tried to track David down to kill him. 
But here we see David tracking down the house of Saul in order to love them because he's a different kind of king. In verse 3, a servant of the house of Saul named Ziba was brought in to give an answer to David. And Ziba responds by telling David about Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. In this man's name, the Hebrew word for shame is Bosheth. Shame was wound up into the man's very name. And we're going to learn throughout the rest of the narrative as to why that is the case. Because when Ziba brings this man up, he doesn't mention him by name. He mentions him by his condition. He was crippled in both feet. It seems that Ziba introduces him in this way in order to communicate to David that he could safely ignore him. He can't do anything to you, O king, and he can't do anything for you. So it's a waste of your time, O king. You don't need to pay any attention to him, O king. But David doesn't reach out because of what this man can do to him. He doesn't reach out because of what this man can do for him. He reaches out because he is a captive of covenant love. And when David's servants retrieve Mephibosheth and bring him before David, look at what happens. Verses 6 through 8. He calls Mephibosheth by name. That's, that's not unimportant, y'all. He, he calls him by name. And he assures him that he has nothing to fear. And he pours out on him an immense fortune. And then to cap it off, he tells him, you shall eat at my table always. This is how David deals with his political rival, this is how David deals with the man that he likely could have identified as an enemy because he's a different kind of king operating according to a different kind of principle. He, he sees Mephibosheth and he remembers his kingly responsibility that he's supposed to look out for those who were vulnerable. He's supposed to look out and execute justice for those who are stamped down and on the margins. And in fact, you, you may have realized in this text as we read it that David doesn't just bring him in and seat him at his table. No, David commands his servants to do the work in the fields that Mephibosheth himself could not do so that there would always be provision for him. He establishes a system of welfare for Mephibosheth. This is an element of care that Mephibosheth simply could not execute for himself. If he didn't have anyone looking out for him, he would have been a goner. But David makes sure that in the execution of his kingly rule, the vulnerable are going to be taken care of. This is the way it's going to work in this kingdom. You shall eat at my table always. And the narrator in verses 11 through 13 sums it up this way. He says, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. <laughs> like one of the king's sons. What does this king do with his enemy? He makes him family. 
This is what David does because this is what a good king is supposed to do. We see here that when Mephibosheth was at his worst, David gave him his best. He turns his shame into honor by seating him at his table. The people of Israel would have wondered. They would have been astonished. They would have thought to themselves, what kind of king is this? What kind of king invites his enemy to his table? What kind of king restores fortunes like this? What kind of king treats his enemies like family? And as we consider the picture that is given to us in 2 Samuel chapter 9, you and I must realize that the whole point of the story is to give us a faint glimmer of a different kind of king. It's meant to lead us to a greater king. It's meant to lead us to someone who is eminently qualified to rule. This story isn't just about King David and Mephibosheth. This story is about King Jesus and us. He is the king over all the creation. And we could have expected him to execute the people who had loyalties to another. Those who wanted him gone. Those who didn't want his kingship. In our sin, we rejected the Lord's kingship. And we should have been the number one target of his wrath. But it's at this very point that we see the shocking, unexpected reversal of the kingdom. After Genesis 3, you could have expected all of the heavenly beings in glory to say to one another at the hearing of their king, is there anyone left that I might put them to death? That's what the heavenly host should have heard from King Jesus. That's what they should have heard from the Lord. Is there anyone left that I might put them to death, that I might eliminate them? But Jesus shows that he's not like other kings. He remembers a, a divine promise, a, a commitment, a, an intra-Trinitarian promise between Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity past to work out salvation for those who should have been destroyed. He chooses love for his enemies rather than the sword. Jesus wasn't looking around for approval from his culture when he walked this earth. He leads because he knows who he is. He knew the difference between the true enemy, Satan, and those friends temporarily disguised as enemies, you and me. And he knew the difference between a true enemy and friends disguised as enemies, not because he was a man after God's own heart, but because he was the very expression of God's own heart. He was God's heart walking in the flesh. We see in the person of Jesus Christ and in the work of Jesus Christ what's on the heart of God Almighty. He shows covenant love to the people who wanted him dead. He put himself in the way of risk to put us in the way of redemption. He pours out the riches of his grace on those who rejected and despised him. King David dodged the spear of Saul, but Jesus had to be pierced for our transgressions. The heavenly host could have easily said, great king, they're not worth your time. 
They can't do anything to you. And they can't do anything for you. But Jesus doesn't reach down because of what you and I can do for him. And he doesn't reach down because of what we could do to him. He reaches down because he is the God of covenant love. He calls us by name. And when he puts his name on you, you become an inheritor. When he puts his name on you, it means everything. Because you know, as the old poet said, what's in a name you know that it all depends on what that name is. If the name is Einstein, it means a mighty intellect. If the name is Rockefeller, it means lots of money. But if the name is Jesus, it means salvation and mercy and grace. It means enemy love. It means neighbor love. It means faithfulness and loyal kindness. That's what's in that name, and that's why we praise his name. That's why we glory in his name. He calls us by name. He calms our fears. He pours out on us the immense riches of his glorious inheritance. And then he tells us, hear it as if from his very mouth this morning, family. You shall eat at my table always. You shall eat at my table always. I know I'm supposed to treat you like an enemy, but you will eat at my table always. I know your sins have been enormous, but you shall eat at my table always. I know you have many failures and faults behind you, but you shall eat at my table always. Swing your broken body underneath my table and eat the richest affair. You shall eat at my table always, and you shall eat at my table always in a particular way. You shall eat at my table no longer as enemies. You shall eat at my table like sons and daughters. You shall eat at my table like you belong here. It's an invitation to identify as someone who belongs around this table to take on a new identity, I will extract the shame from your identity when I seat you at my table. You shall eat at my table like a daughter, like a son. And if we consider what has happened in the gospel, we rightly ask, what kind of king is this? What kind of king invites his enemies to sit at his table? What kind of king treats enemies like sons and daughters? And the answer coming back to us from scripture is the king of kings. That's the kind of king. This royal invitation changed Mephibosheth's life. And later on in 2 Samuel, Mephibosheth says this to David. He says, all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. We were as men doomed to death. But you set us at your table. And all of this, as I close, family, leads us to ask this kind of question of ourselves and of our church. What kind of people 
are we to be in the world because we have been seated at that table? What kind of people are we supposed to be because we have been united to this king? How should we be working out our royal responsibility in the world? This text shows us something of our intended socio-political impact as royal children of the king. And I want you to understand something really important here. Our aim is not impact. Our aim is faithfulness. If you aim at impact or you presume that you are entitled to have impact, when you're not having it, then you'll start to manipulate. You'll start to manufacture impact. You'll start to stack the deck. You'll start to put stuff on social media to make it seem like you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. But we don't aim at impact. We aim at faithfulness. And if we aim at faithfulness, according to God's sovereign will, we will have impact in due time. And it may be the unseen impact. It may be hidden impact. It may be veiled impact. But it will be impact nonetheless. What kind of people are royal children supposed to be? We have to be careful, family, that we don't live beneath our royal privileges. Blasting one another on social media is living beneath our royal privileges. Taking aim at our political leaders without praying for them, doing it in a spirit of ugliness, is living beneath your royal privileges. There is a way to bring criticism. There's a way to bring concern that does not fall trapped to the toxicity of our culture. Alienating our political rivals is living beneath our royal privileges. Everyone who's watched royal families, anyone who's seen it on the news or read about them, knows that royal families understand that there's a certain standard of dignity that they must live into. And it's no different for us. Except this. This royal standard isn't about primping. It's, it, it's, it's not about projecting appearances. No, this, this royal dignity is about a moral and ethical fabric that shapes the way we inhabit the world. It shapes the way we deal with and love one another. It doesn't take any of the important things that we've already said off the table. Yes, we must bring truth to error. Yes, we must bring critique where there is a, a, a misalignment with kingdom norms and kingdom values. But who we are when we do that and how we do that matters a lot. Yes, we must fight for the good, the true, and the beautiful. But we have to be careful, family, that we don't mistake friends disguised as enemies for the true enemy. We like to identify the enemy as certain identity groups. It's those people. It's the Republicans. It's the Democrats. It's the Black Lives Matter folk. It's the white supremacists. But what the scriptures tell us is that the true enemy is the devil, the evil one himself. And the only way that we will begin to push back some of the darkness is if we stop getting confused as to who the true enemy really is. I like how Dr. King put it. We must never stoop so low as to let someone lead us to hate them. 
And if I could take 2 Samuel 9, I would tell you that it is of the royal dignity of God's royal image bearers that we never stoop so low as to let someone lead us to treat them like an enemy. Never let anyone drag you that low. Because the answer always and ever is what does the gospel logic have to say to me? If God treated his enemies like I am prone to treat mine, where would I be? I wouldn't be at his table. I wouldn't be feasting like one of the king's children. No, my fate would be far more disastrous than that. We must allow our premier political allegiance, Jesus is Lord, to govern the way in which we execute our royal office. We must throw off the spirit of Zeba. They aren't worth your time because they can't do anything to you or for you. No, we must remember that we are a people that is endowed with the spirit of the king. I want you to walk away with this from this series. More than principles for socio-political engagement, we need the principle, the spirit of the king, who banishes the fear, the selfishness, the inner chaos that drives mutual recriminations, resentments, and antagonisms. This is different from the spirit of Ziba. We ought to be ever aware that Jesus turned our death sentence into a dinner invitation. And this should make us the most hospitable people that extends the welcome of God in a polarized world, looking for opportunities to bring people into our homes, to bring people into our life, to bring people into this church, to bring people into the kingdom of God. Do you realize what you're saying when you say you want to be Christ-like? Christos is king. Yet that's saying you want to be kingly. You want to operate like the great king. You want to be a royal emissary in this world. And I'm going to reiterate what I said earlier in our service is that this is particularly the case in our current moment with the coronavirus going on. We must lead. We must lead and care. We must throw off the selfishness and self-preservation that would tell us that we, we shouldn't put ourselves in the way of risk. Because Jesus put himself in the way of risk so that he could put us in the way of redemption. We can go out and we can serve our elderly neighbors and those who are immunocompromised. I'll never forget the work of Rodney Stark as he wrote about the growth of the early church. He said that one of the reasons why the early church grew was when, when all of the, the, the plagues and the public health disasters were happening and the pagans were running away. The Christians were running toward those in need. And many of the things they were suffering from could, could have been alleviated with simple care. And the pagans ran from their neighbors, but Christians ran toward them. And it was this that caused the church to grow and flourish. And it's nice to read about those things when that doesn't seem like it's going to be a live possibility for us to have to live into. We can celebrate those things, can't we? Yeah, that's what Christians did. We ran into the, to the sickness. But then coronavirus happens, we're like, oh, 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 that's what that means. Yeah. So I'm saying, who are we going to be? Are we going to be a kingly people 
that knows that Christ is our life and nothing can separate us? And are we going to bless and serve our people? Bless and serve our place? Bless and serve our neighbors? Are we going to be a royal family? Are we going to live up into our privileges or are we going to live beneath our dignity? That is always and ever the question before us every morning when we wake up. Let that royal dignity lay heavy upon you and rise up to carry that mantle in Jesus' name. We must take up the threefold office of Christ the mediator in our political moment. We must be a prophetic church bringing the scalpel of gospel truth inside our community and outside. We must be a priestly church mediating in this world so that people can see that there's no other priesthood that can offer what the great high priest can offer. And we must be a kingly church, a people compelled by covenant love to lead our neighbors to the table of the great king. And this, all this, for the life of the world. Amen. Let's pray. for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.